Welcome to Theology.fm. I am your host, Jeremy Myers. Several years ago, as I was doing some research and writing for a book that I was working on, still not done, the book was on the violence of God in Scripture, how to understand the violence of God. And I was beating my head against the wall left and right because I just could not make sense of the violence of God in the Old Testament, especially in light of the revelation that we have about God in Jesus Christ. Somewhere along the way, I came across the writings of René Girard and what he has said about something called mimetic theory. It's a fancy word for this tendency all humans have to imitate what they see. And it may not sound like initially much of an insight into culture and history and human interaction, but he came to an understanding about how violence, all violence, human violence, rivalry, and even culture itself and religion, our understanding of God, our interactions with the other, with one another, stem ultimately from imitation, our imitation of one another, our, our imitation of one another's desires even. Anyway, it's sort of a comp- complex uh, theory, although when you get right down to it, it's quite simple, and you see how it is taught all over the place in Scripture. In fact, René Girard says that the Bible is one of the clearest revelations of mimetic theory, or mimesis, imitation, that we find anywhere in all of human history. And that's why he ultimately came to accept the Bible as the inspired or uh, revelatory Word of God. Anyway, I'm not sure he would state it quite like that, but uh, I recently was able to sit down with Adam Erickson, who works at the Raven Foundation. And the Raven Foundation, their primary goal in life, it's a, a nonprofit organization, is to apply the insights of mimetic theory of René Girard to life and politics and culture. And uh, Adam Erickson, he is the education director at the Raven Foundation. He's also a writer and speaker at conferences and churches. His articles have been found on Time Magazine and Sojourners. And he recently delivered the baccalaureate address at his alma mater, Linfield College. Uh, In these writings, Adam explores the intersection of mimetic theory, current events, religion, popular culture, and he even wrote a book on parenting. Talk about a down-to-earth practical example, practical application of mimetic theory. I recently have finished reading it. It's an excellent book, probably one of the best books on parenting I've ever read. It's called Dodging the Parenting Trap. It is not available on Amazon or anywhere else except on the Raven Foundation. And you can get a free copy of Dodging the Parenting Trap, a digital copy, by subscribing to get their email newsletter and updates from them. Just go to the Raven Foundation uh, and subscribe that way. That's how I got my free copy. I downloaded it, printed it off, and, and read through it. I just finished it last week. An excellent book, which I hope to apply some of the principles and ideas from that book to my own uh, parenting life as I raise my three daughters. So oh, I'm going to probably read portions of it to my wife as well. Hopefully we can learn to apply some of those insights to to uh, our attempts to parent our three daughters as they as they grow up. So join me as I sit down with Adam Erickson and discuss his work at the Raven Foundation and his work with mimetic theory. 
All right, Adam, well, welcome. Thank Thanks, you for joining Jerry. me. It's great to be here. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about yourself, your history, what you do. Uh, yeah, I, well, I grew up in a uh, Lutheran church and was kind of introduced to God theology, I guess, that way. And um, I guess some pivotal moments in my life, uh, my mom was struck with cancer when I was in fifth grade. Hmm. And I was too young, really, to know what that meant at the time. Uh, and my parents never really talked about it. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't know what was going on with it. Um, but then a couple years later, it went into remission. And I could tell this was a really great thing because they celebrated it a lot. Um, and then when I was in ninth grade, it came back. And by then I realized that uh, this was serious and I knew what cancer was and that this could take my mom's life. And so I was afraid. And uh, I wanted to see how my mom felt about it. So I picked up the courage to ask her. And um, my mom was not a religious person. She wasn't even a spiritual person. She had the mouth of a sailor. She cussed a <laughs> lot. Um, and she was angry a lot of the time. Um, and she didn't want to go to church. We went to church because my dad went to church. Interestingly, she never went to the Eucharist. Hmm. She never participated in the Lord's Supper. She always said, my heart isn't right enough for this. Um, and so when I went up to her and asked her, are you ever afraid? Uh, she, her response blew me away because she said, I'm not afraid because I know my Jesus will save me. And I thought, who is this Jesus person that you're speaking of? <laughs> who, is this, who is this guy who is saving you, who has saved you, who will save you? And it just kind of set me off on this trajectory of trying to discover who is Jesus and what the heck did he do with my mom Yeah, you know, in this moment. So, um, and it was also interesting because the church that I grew up in was going through one of those phases that churches tend to do where they didn't like the pastor. The pastor was a scapegoat for the issues that were underlining the community. Um, and it was just very hostile. So there were factions. So there was the pro-pastor faction and the anti-pastor faction. And there was just, it was just a very negative feeling. And I didn't want to have anything to do with church. Hmm. Um, and I, maybe my mom picked up on that. And that's why she didn't want to go to church either. Uh, but there was one couple there who ran the youth group. And they were in their 40s, 50s at the time. And they were, also, they were always interested in our lives. They started off every session saying, with highs and lows. So we would share our lives with one another. Hmm. And it was this really beautiful thing inside this kind of hostile place of wanting to get to know the other, wanting to hear lives and stories, what's going on at school, what's going on in your family, and that kind of stuff. Um, and so that's, that was kind of my childhood, I guess, and what got me interested in church. Um, after seminary, I became a youth pastor, um, and I'm a youth pastor 
uh, now. So I was a youth pastor in Chicago for about eight years. Uh, did the highs and lows thing with my youth group because it was so fundamental for me. Um, and now I'm a youth pastor here in Oregon. So, yeah. Uh, also blog for uh, the Raven Foundation, um, which is centered around mimetic theory. Uh, I've been doing that for uh, about 10 years now. Okay. So. Yeah, and I really, really, reason I first connected with you is because of the Raven Foundation. I don't know how I first heard about them. So tell us a little bit about Raven Foundation, why they exist, what they're for, what you do with them, for them, what their goals are. So Raven Foundation is centered around um, this thing called mimetic theory. Uh, and it was kind of created, I guess, by a man named Rene Girard. Um, the mimetic theory was? Yeah, mimetic theory was. Uh, and he, what mimetic theory basically means, uh, mimesis means imitation. And... Uh, he came up with this theory about human nature. And what he basically says is that humans are radically social creatures. Uh, the Af uh, ancient African tradition is Ubuntu. And Desmond Tutu says Ubuntu means I am because we are. Hmm. So what Girard says is that we gain our identity not by looking somewhere inside of ourselves, but by looking outward at our relationships. So, for example, I know that I am a husband because I am in relationship with my wife. I know that I'm a father because I have children, a son because I have a father. I'm doing this uh, podcast because I'm here with Jeremy, right? So this is, this is how radically relational we are. Our identity is based on our relationships. Gerard goes so far as to say we are our relationships. Hmm. Um, so that's pretty radical, but it's also, especially in our modern world, where everything is about the individual. Uh, think, I think because therefore I am. Well, no, it's you are because you're in relationship with others. Uh, and this is where we get our identity. Um, but what really makes mimetic theory radical is that Girard, there are three parts to the theory. Girard says that we desire relationally. So what I desire, uh, you are going to desire too. So for example, uh, if I reach for this glass of coffee, this cup of coffee, and it's on the table, um, you're at uh, dinner, and somebody reaches for a glass of water, you instinctively reach for a glass of water. Somebody yawns, you instinctively yawn, right? Well, what happens when I'm reaching for a glass of water and you reach for a glass of water, but there's only one glass of water on the table? We come to, into conflict for the object, right? Um, and we see this happening all over the world. Uh, and mirror neurons, uh, neurosci neuroscience has shown us that mirror neurons, when I'm reaching for the glass of water, your mirror neurons are going nuts as if you are also reaching for the glass of water. So this is a uh, non-conscious thing that we do. Uh, you don't even realize that you're wanting to reach for the glass of water. It's just something that happens within us. Um, and we come to blows over the glass of water. But what Girard says is 
that will often happen is instead of us going to blows over the glass of water and defeating one another, is that all of our hostilities will get channeled against a scapegoat, a victim. Um, and so we will end up blaming someone else for the problems that are within our community. And once we get rid of that person uh, in the ancient world, they would be sacrificed. Uh, we might exclude them. We might say, no, we can't have any Muslims coming into our country uh, and try to exclude them. Um, we'll have a sense of peace from us, from uniting against a common enemy. Uh, our hostilities will wash away for a moment until the problem reemerges and we'll find another scapegoat. So the first part of the theory is imitation, mimesis. The second part is the scapegoat um, that leads to a temporary sense of peace. And the third part is the biblical revelation. So a lot of academics don't, don't take Rene seriously because he's a believer and he takes the Bible seriously. Yeah. <laughs> so what, he, what Rene says is that the Bible reveals this imitation and scapegoating mechanism, um, but also reveals the way out of it. Uh, ultimately on the cross where Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Mm. Uh, Michael Hardin says this is the first uh, allusion, literary allusion to the human non-conscious. They know not what they do. Um, and Jesus offers forgiveness in response to it. Uh, not revenge in response to it. So he stops the cycle of violence, of vengeance um, right there and offers forgiveness and peace in return. So those are kind of the nuts and bolts of the theory. Okay. And that's what Raven Foundation, they are set up to sort of put this into practice or make it more known, make, make, make it more understand it more. Yeah, make it more and Why is that important? Known. Um, well, it's important for a number of reasons. First, uh, when we started, it was primarily academics talking to academics about the theory. When did Rene live? He died in November. Right, just, just recently, just right? Just recently. And he was starting to write about this when? Oh, the late 50s, Is it I late think. 50s? Okay. Yeah, so his first book is called Deceit, Desire, and the Novel, where he... Um, he he was teaching French. He was trained as a historian, teaching French literature, and uh, and in the French literature that he was teaching, he thinks he found this mimetic yeah. theory, uh, what it means to be human, and they're desiring what one another were desiring and coming into conflict over it. So um, so that's kind of where it comes from, the French literature. Okay. So. Sort of the terminology, or at least that book. Yeah, yeah. All right, so back, sorry, I sidetracked you a bit. So, all right, so while there, it was just the academics talking about this. Because right. he was fairly academic. He, I've read some of his books. They're very difficult to read. They are so hard to read. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all kinds of language that um, you have to be trained in order yeah. to understand what he's talking about. Yeah. So what uh, we want to do at Raven is kind of relate mimetic theory to uh, current events, Mm -hmm. What's going on in politics, religion, pop culture, um, that kind of thing, and relate it to mimetic theory. Because there's a certain amount of power within the theory uh, that we think can help lead us to a more peaceful world. Once you see, for example, 
the scapegoat mechanism working, you see, Renee would always say, it's easy to see how others are scapegoating, but it's much more difficult to see how you are also caught up in the scapegoating process. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's this, um, it's almost this Saul slash Paul on the road to Damascus, how you end up seeing the ways in which all of us can get caught up in Saul was a persecutor, how we get caught up in persecuting others and scapegoating others and how we need that experience of being knocked off our horse by the light and love of God and see how we get, we are constantly getting caught up in scapegoating our enemies. Mm -hmm. Um, And what mimetic theory does for me is helps me to own that. And so it's not about me saying, Oh, uh, look at them. They're the evil bastards that we need to get rid of. It's seeing how even that is my own scapegoating impulse within me and how I can manage that in a better way. I think mimetic theory gives us the tools in order to name it, uh, acknowledge it within ourselves and manage it in healthier, more loving, compassionate ways that lead us towards forgiveness. Hmm. So just to go through the three things a little bit, uh, the three areas of his theory a little bit more. Um, the first one was imitation, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and th- that's not a bad thing, right? Or, or is it? W- what are you saying about imitation? That it's a... Imitation is fundamentally a good thing. Fundamentally, it's a good thing. Fundamentally a it's good thing. There are some inherent people, within us. We're it's, born it's inherent with it. within us. I, I take it as part of the goodness of creation uh-huh. that we see in Genesis. Now, um, so... Gerard is not the first one to see that humans are imitative creatures. Right. Uh, Aristotle came up with it. Um, but what, what he says is that imitation is only good. So he didn't talk Aristotle about... Aristotle said that? Yeah. Uh. yeah. Aristotle or Plato... One of those, one of those philosophers, guys. okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> one of those guys, yeah. Um, I think it was Plato. But. Okay. So what, what they end up saying is that if you want to be good at something, an, a, an apprentice will imitate their master huh. and become good at something. And basically, they leave it at that. And everybody sort of knows that. So yeah. that wasn't necessarily new with Girard. Right, right. Where Girard comes in and they, uh, Plato never got to this is Gerard sees that although mimesis, imitation, is fundamentally a good thing, it can, our desires can get distorted. Hmm. It can lead us into rivalry. So, for example, take the uh, master and apprentice. The apprentice, the master trains the apprentice, and the apprentice gets so good that the apprentice starts to overcome the master. How is the master going to deal with this? I'll give you an example, a personal example of this. I was a youth pastor, and um, one of my students who went off to college came back and wanted to do a lesson for one of my groups. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'm good at sharing. We can do that. So she came back, and she did this amazing lesson that just totally connected with all of my kids. And she, it was just, my job was dropping and it should have been a moment where I was like, oh my God, I'm so proud of the student. 
that I had. She's fantastic. What a great job. She was so much better than I was. <laughs> and I swear to God, feelings of resentment came yep. up inside of me. And I was like, I know mimetic theory. I know that this is what can happen and I'm susceptible to this. And yet it's happening anyway. And man, she, did, she just did awesome. And so that's <laughs> where the conflict starts so to get introduced. That's, that's where the conflict starts to get introduced. And the master has an incentive to keep the apprentice down. Hmm. So uh, Star Wars is maybe one of the best examples of this. You've got Jedi masters training their apprentices. And apprentices get, um, get resentful that their master is trying to keep them down. Well, of course the master is trying to keep them down because the master doesn't want to be overtaken by the apprentice. So you see this in, in the church. It happened to me, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I see it happening um, all over the place. And so what, how do you manage those natural feelings, I think, is um, something important and a tool that mimetic theory can help us understand. Yeah. As soon so. as you begin to look for it and recognize that you do, you see it all over the place from children playing to politics, the way governments interact with each other. Yeah. Um, even, you know, keeping up with the Joneses sort of a thing. Oh, oh they got man. this new car. I guess I got to go get a new car, whatever. Absolutely. Um, okay. So, so that's the first part. And then the conflict comes from that. Now is the conflict Conflict doesn't always happen, does it? And you mentioned earlier with the, the cups of water. Now, what if there's only one cup of water? Uh, what if there's no... Um, uh, limited supply? What if, mm -hmm. what if the supply is, is unlimited? Or, there, you know, there's, a, there's a two cups of water on the table. You still get conflict in that sort of situation? You know, his is better than mine. Yeah. Or, no, or... absolutely. So if there are two cups of water, uh, for example, um, I could reach for mine. And me reaching for mine um, does something in the other that tells, the, that tells you that there's something inherently more more abundant, more something better about this. Maybe more desirable. More either. desirable about this cup of water. Your so, cup. So yeah. you go to um, uh, you go to a bookstore and there's a table of books and somebody picks up one book and all of a sudden you're like, oh, that looks like a great book. Your attention is drawn to that book. That or particular that, book. That particular book or that particular sweater. Or yeah. you, this happens to me with shoes. Uh, one time I was at a shoe store and um, there was this shoe and I was like, oh, that's kind of a nice shoe. Uh, I think I might get that shoe. Well, I put it back. Stupid. Uh -huh. <laughs> and this other guy comes over and he picks up the shoe. And I'm like, oh, that is really a great shoe. I put, hope he puts that back because I really want that Now you really shoe. want it. Yeah. So it yep. increases the desire for the particular object. So I kind of wanted it before, but now I really want this Because you shoe. put it down, now he's picked it up. And even though there's another similar one on the shelf, well, that one has a little scuff mark. You just notice it, which makes it less valuable than the one he's holding. Yeah, right? or it's a slightly different color or yeah. something like that. But this one, and it's only because this other person touched it. Yep. It's, it gives it a certain sense of Ex excess of power that it didn't have before. Right. Um, and so fortunately, I ended up getting the shoe. He put it back. Nice. And I just <laughs> picked that thing up and bought it right away. <laughs> oh, 
That is funny. Okay, so... so, so but, just... but you see how this works not only with shoes or with glasses of water, but with um, land, mm. you know? And, and the other thing that's important to point out is that it's, it's really not about the object. So when you're in a... F- I'll own this. When I'm in a fight with my wife the next day, I'm like, God, what, what was it that we fought about? I can't even remember. It's because it's not about the object. It's fundamentally not about the glass or the shoe or the land. It's about the thing behind the thing, right? Right. It's about, uh, so um, Gerard will use the academic term metaphysical desire. So there's a desire for the object and there's the metaphysical desire for something like power or prestige or even peace. Uh. Um, And so when we're talking about nations... Uh, politicians, you must always be careful for those politicians who talk the most about wanting peace (laughs) because the way that uh, we tend to get peace, again, is through scapegoating, is through violence because there's always a threat to our peace, which is the enemy. Um, And we want peace, and so we have to get rid of the enemy. Yeah, I want to bring up our current presidential campaign political landscape here in a couple minutes as we get to it. But Um, You mentioned scapegoating there, and I want to go, I want to move sort of into that a little bit. So how does it go from conflict, say, between you and me over whatever, the glass of water, the book, the shoes, the land, peace, power, whatever, prestige, to scapegoating? What's the, um, describe that process. Well, uh, so let's say that we're having a conflict over something. Yeah. Okay. You and I are you and I are having and a I, conflict yeah. over something. And uh I like you and you like me. We're we're friends. And so we really don't want to go to blows. We really don't want to hurt each other. So what we're going to end up doing in order to save our friendship is scapegoat somebody who's in our somebody who we work with, a coworker. And we'll start blaming the secretary for whatever problems that our business is having. Um, I worked for a company uh, right out of college, and uh, we were uh, kind of in the low end of uh, the business. Um, We were uh, doing the dirty work. Um, And so we were already kind of, I don't know, at the low end and not respected. And there were some conflicts merging uh, in the group, and we ended up uh, scapegoating the person who worked as the secretary, who was from, I forget, Eastern Europe somewhere. Mm. Um, and we started saying it was the secretary's fault that things aren't working out for us. Slow, uh, not getting things done as fast as we want them to get done. So, uh, so that's like one example of it. Um, instead of so what Rene will end up saying, what Gerard says, is that in the early human communities, before we were really human, but in the uh, process of evolution, uh, human groups, pre-human groups, would self-destruct because they would be in a war of all against all. Um, and what happened over time is that this war of all against all ended up getting channeled against uh, war of all against one. So one person is end up being blamed for everything and sacrificed. 
Um, and that's how, that's part of the evolution of uh, being human came about. Hmm. Um, and you see that in office politics. I mean, I just described it, uh, what I went through as well. So, um, so it, it just makes, the whole process makes sense to me. So. Yeah, no, I see it all the time, too, in my own life and the places I've worked. So the way people can, I mean, the scapegoat is, is are they guilty or at least partially guilty or are they completely innocent of the things that they are accused of? Well, that's a great question. Yeah, they, um, so the scapegoat is, uh, is, is innocent. The scapegoat is um, another way of saying it, I guess, is the scapegoat is no more or less guilty than anyone else. Mm. Um, and but in fact, oftentimes uh, a guilty scapegoat is the best scapegoat. Ah, because so we, we can justify our condemnation of them. Absolutely, absolutely. So if we're having conflicts and somebody is guilty, uh, maybe just as guilty as any of us or a little bit more guilty, it'll justify our behavior even more. So I, I think I, we always tend to think that a, that a scapegoat has to be innocent. But the best scapegoat for us is a guilty one. I like that. Yeah. They're the ones that make the most sense for us to, to blame. And to not solve our problem. Yeah. Which is the, which is the issue behind the uh -huh. issue. And so, just sort of summary, the reason we turn to scapegoats is really to, to it, it's a self, it's subconscious, right? To choose a scapegoat typically? Yeah, it's, uh, the mimetic theorists will call it non-conscious. Non-conscious. Yeah. Okay. So you don't realize that you're doing it. Um, I don't care if subconscious, unconscious, whatever. Do you think people sometimes do realize they're doing it and they know that it is a way to, let's say my wife and I are having an argument. Now that I've become, I'll, I'll, I'll confess here, now that mm -hmm. I've come become aware of mimetic theory over the last couple years or so, if I'm having an argument with my wife or someone at work and I want to create peace, yeah. I, I notice there's a little thing in my brain that yeah. starts looking yeah. for a scapegoat yeah. so that I can create the peace that I know will come as a result yeah. of, of us uniting together against a scapegoat. I feel horrible doing it. Yeah. But do you think sometimes that does happen consciously on a, I don't know, a, 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 mm, governmental scale yeah. or I don't know I'm just curious if you and Raven Foundation have looked into this at all or I'm I'm trying to remember the uh, the verse of the Bible uh, somewhere that says uh, you had an excuse before but you don't have an excuse now uh. <laughs> <laughs> but I think at the same level um, you know, you know, Jesus reveals this, and so we know right. there's something. And this in is us. the third part of right. This is the, 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 the biblical revelation yeah. since Jesus, since the Judeo. I mean, and you and I don't want to just emphasize. I'm a Christian, so I emphasize Jesus. But you see this throughout the uh, Hebrew Bible too. Yeah. Um, but since Jesus, um, there's something in us that knows what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Forgive them, for they know not what they do might be more of a pre-revelation statement. And now, since Jesus, we're, we're put onto this. 
were put onto this. I'm still convinced, though, that we don't know the full extent mm. of what we're doing when we scapegoat. There's still something in us that um, uh, that thinks that our scapegoats are truly guilty, yeah, or truly deserving, or I don't know something. And plus, um, I don't want to use this as a cop out for any of us, but there is forgiveness. Mm. And I, I just think that the universal forgiveness that Jesus offers, Paul says it like this, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us, Love it. and entreating us to the mission of reconciliation. So if God is not counting our sins against us, who is? That's what we do. Yeah, we're it's counting. all we do. It's all we do. <laughs> We are the counting ones. people's sins against them. Oh man, we... and if God doesn't, why do we? I yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> why do we? Why do we? Uh, I think we do it in the name of we do it for. Uh, this is also what mimetic theory has taught me, especially with James Allison. Hmm. Um, very Catholic view that uh, behind all of this there is a good and. I used to say that people are um, do things for power, for lust, for uh, a negative reason, and that's um, that's a way of for me to scapegoat them. I would never do that. I would never do it for evil, nasty reasons. I would only do it behind it is a desire for peace. So one of the things we can do with our ancestors is say how evil they were for sacrificing a scapegoat. But what they saw was that this led to a very unfortunate, but also a very good thing, which is what we all want. We all want peace. And it led to peace and it creates this ritual of whenever bad things happen, we remember what led to peace, which is what we want. And what led to peace was this sacrifice, a horrible thing that leads to a good, mm -hmm. which is peace. Uh, the key is to find a different way that will lead to peace that isn't at the expense of someone else. And that's really what Jesus revealed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And to go to Jesus, first of all, one of the beautiful things, if I remember correctly, one of the beautiful things about Jesus is like what you were saying earlier, is that most scapegoats. In fact, the best scapegoat, I think, is what you said, is the one who is guilty, yeah. or at least has some guilt. Right. And the reason Jesus is able to reveal the scapegoat mechanism so perfectly is because he had no guilt. He was innocent. He was innocent. Yeah. There's nothing to blame him for, mm -hmm. exactly. And that's why, right? Is that yeah. why no, Gerard said it. that's why he reveals this, this tendency, this human tendency to scapegoat so well? Yeah. Yeah, and so you begin to see that all of our victims um, uh, are not as guilty as we make them out to be, mm. are more innocent than we make. All of our scapegoats are a product of us. I mean, that's part of the radical nature of being social creatures, is that even the most evil, vile people are a product of human culture, are a product of us. Um, and 
uh, once you see that formation that this this infects all of us it's like uh alexander solzhenitsyn right who says the line between good and evil runs down the middle of each and every one of us mm. i mean there's a certain sense of humility um that this is leading towards when jesus says take the log out of your own eye before you take the splinter out of your neighbor's eye i mean it's a log in your eye and it's only a splinter in your neighbor's eye yeah as much as we want to convince ourselves of the opposite that's those are the words of jesus hmm. it's beautiful <laughs> so one thing that um well, let me, let, me, let me back up a little bit. Uh, in my reading of mimetic theory and René Girard and, and Michael Harden and a couple other people, I mean yourself and some others, uh, some of the stuff on Raven Foundation, and um, I've seen that uh, what happens a lot of times is when the scapegoat is killed or condemned or cast out or whatever, and then the peace results, a couple of things seem to happen there. Number one, the people feel that because peace resulted from the death or casting out of the scapegoat, that therefore their accusation, their condemnation of them was accurate. Mm -hmm. It proves that they really were causing the problem. If you mm -hmm. and I are having a conflict and we agree to scapegoat someone else, we cast them out, whatever, and then now you and I have peace, we say, see? Yep. They were the problem. They were the one causing the problem. That, that happens, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that doesn't prove that they really were causing the problem. It, I mean, is the peace... I don't know if I'm... At, I'm not even really asking a question there. Um, there's a question in there somewhere. I just don't know what it is. Yeah. Um, uh, no, the, the efficiency of the whole process... It does work. It works. And we go back to what works. And you want to... Of course, you want to say it works in quotation marks because it doesn't actually work to solve the problem. Uh, because that's where the rep, that's where the ritual comes in. Because since we haven't dealt with the true problem, which is the conflict that comes from mimetic uh, desire, mm -hmm. imitation of desire, we haven't dealt with the true problems. Uh, the result of that, it's going to come back to haunt us. And what are we going to do? We're going to go back to what brought peace, which is, it's the myth of redemptive violence. Mm. If you want to bring in Walter Wink. Yeah, I love Walter Wink. Yeah, yeah his, his trilogy and even some of the other stuff he's written there on violence. Um, okay, so then in my reading, and this is something that doesn't make sense to me about mimetic theory. Uh, part of the sort of end process there, according to Girard and some of the other things I've, I've read, is that after the scapegoat is killed and peace results somewhere along the way according to the theory the people realize oh this person by us killing them brought peace and according to Girard and, and, and other people I've read they said that somehow that person they killed then sort of becomes God or, or becomes deified or something like that they they start to worship that person the scapegoat I've never understood how that happens, or maybe I'm not even explaining it correctly. I don't understand that part of the theory. I wonder if you can clarify a little bit. No, you're, it is one of the more difficult parts of the theory to understand. Um, and I don't know if I can do a good job clarifying it. Uh, you know, and um, I, I want to preface it by saying this, uh, the latest book, uh, 
of Gerard, uh, uh, edited by Michael Harden, is reading the Bible with Gerard. I just bought my copy yesterday. It should be there next week. And and what you will one of the things that I love about Rene is his humility, and he'll come to areas like this. Um, specifically in this book, it's the only place where I've seen him do this. He'll say, I don't know if I'm explaining this very well. And so I just, I just bring that up as, uh, as a way to tell you and myself and others that there are, um, even Rene says there are really difficult things about this that even he thinks that he might not be explaining very well. (laughs) Um, so that at least for me allows me to relax about some of the things about the theory. Um, it's also a, uh, I've also learned that this is a lifetime endeavor, understanding this thing. Right. And this is, this is one of the technical uh, issues that, um, that is difficult, but I think also very important because the piece that comes, what Gerard says is that um, uh, there is order and there is disorder. And the principle of both during this time is violence. So uh, when there is order, um, when order uh, gets mm, into disorder, it's caused by violence. And the way to bring order back is through violence. And there's all this chaos that's happening uh, that is threatening our very existence. And we need order and the way to bring it they think it is through violence and it's this miraculous process because where there was this civil war there is now peace amongst us and where did this peace come from Gerard will end up saying that it comes from the god who was both blamed for the violence and the chaos but now has given us this peace and what's happening here is uh, one of the things that this helps us understand is in in the ancient world, the gods um, had uh, this, they were, uh, there was this conflict within them. Sometimes they were uh, benevolent for us and sometimes uh, they were against us. And Michael Harden does this great work with uh, the ancient god Janus. Uh, so Janus is uh, two-faced god. A two-faced god, right? Right. So uh, at one point uh, it's looking this way, and it's also looking this way. It's for us. It's also against us. There's this conflict um, within the gods, and you see this within all the gods of the ancient world. Like uh, there's one who's the god of uh, the animals, who's also the god of um, the hunters. Well, which one is it? Who's he for? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, huh. I mean, it's just uh, it's just this weird thing, and um, this conflictive nature that I, of the gods is uh, explained, I think, through uh, what Gerard is getting at with this divinization process. The other thing that's important to point out is that. It's not that every victim that was sacrificed was automatically made into a god. This is happening over tens of thousands. This is the evolutionary process that takes tens of thousands of years. Hmm. Um, So it's it's one of those things where you can't point to a real certain circumstance and say, oh, yeah, there it is. Um, But it's 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 also an explanation of how we get to 
archaic theology, I suppose. Okay. Um, I don't know if that helps make sense of it. No, or it does not. a little bit, I think. Yeah. Um, especially the fact that it's not going to be every victim who then becomes divinized. Right. Yeah. yeah. That helps. I, I think it's also hard for us moderns to see because um, since Jesus unveiled this whole mechanism and, and took it away from us, we don't divinize our victims anymore. Oh. So you don't really see it in the modern world. I do think you see some, some of it happening. Um, so take Saddam Hussein, for example. Uh, evil man um, who has taken on greater power than he actually had. Divine-like powers to destroy us. So we have to go in there and and kill him under the pretense that he has weapons of mass destruction. Well, we go in there, and it's false. There's nothing there, right? So we tend to... Uh, the flip side of demonizing is divinizing. Mm. There's the same kinds of power. So yeah, divine power is also seen in some myths of the Bible where God comes in and uh, drops hellfire and brimstone on people. Well, this is the same power that we were claiming Saddam Hussein has. God-like, divine-like powers to kill us. Well, they weren't there. I like that, and that makes a whole lot of sense. It's not necessarily they become God, but the, the powers, yeah. the God-like powers that we give them, uh, that helps make a whole lot of sense. You mentioned there uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, so a lot of the people who listen to Theology.fm podcast are pastors and theologians, Bible students, that sort of a thing. So how does uh, mimetic theory help us read Scripture, help us understand theology? Now, I know you've, you just mentioned that book, and like I said, I haven't read it yet, the, the, yeah. this new one by Michael Harden, which, what is it, Reading the Bible with? Reading the Bible with Rene Girard. Right, so, um, okay, and like I said, I just got my copy yesterday. I mean, yeah. I ordered it yesterday from Amazon, but, uh, so I don't know what it's, the book says. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, let's, let me try to do this. Um, one of the great gifts of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah in particular, is, uh, monotheism. So the ancient Jewish world, uh, had some henotheism in it where you have the high God and then there are all of these other gods, uh, have no other gods before me is a henotheistic uh, command. So there are other gods, but I'm the one that you're supposed to have. Well, really with Isaiah, you get monotheism. And we tend to think of monotheism as, well, all of the gods are just kind of formed and together into this one god, <laughs> right? So, um, so we just have, instead of a plurality of gods, we just have one god. Well, I think what the Judeo-Christian view of monotheism is getting at is not simply that um, all of the gods are now just one god, but it's moving away from this Janus-faced god where god has multiple desires, multiple wills, one a violent will, one a peaceful will, um, to a god where you have just one, one will, one desire. So in uh, 1 John, 
you have these passages that say God is love. Um, the other one is God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Yeah. Well, the other ancient gods were light and dark. Monotheism is God is one. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And this, I think, is what the Bible is leading us towards. Sometimes it gets caught up in the trap of ancient myths where uh, God is not peaceful, where God does desire to kill our enemies, uh, rains hellfire and brimstone on people. Um, but in other passages, you get this critique of it. Uh, Gerard will say there is both myth and gospel in the Bible, mm-hmm. um, where you where you he teases it out. Uh, he calls it a text in travail. So uh, along with Hosea, where Hosea says God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Um, well, there's all kinds of sacrifice in the Bible. Yeah, what are and you commands to sacrifice yeah. and instructions yeah. how to do it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's that about? So right. what's that about? God desires mercy, <laughs> not sacrifice. Not sacrifice. Um, uh, Richard Beck ends up saying in his in his book Unclean, I think it is. Um, it's not as if God says, "I desire mercy and a little bit of sacrifice." It's no sacrifice. Yeah, no <laughs> desire know? for that at all. Right. Yeah. yeah, and you get the anti-sacrificial psalms. Right. Um, if I wanted sacrifice, if I wanted to eat the ball, blood and stuff, I would. I wouldn't tell you because I'm not into that, <laughs> you, you know? Um, so th- there is this tension within the Bible. Um, and so one of the things that I think we need to do is uh, hermeneutics. Um, how do we read the Bible? How do we interpret the Bible? How do we, I don't want to do away with the violent parts of the Bible. I, I, I don't, I'm not a proto-Marcionist and Gerard isn't either. We're not going to just rip them out of our Bible right. and say, forget them, don't read them, don't no. study them. Yeah. Right. They're there for a purpose, a reason. Absolutely, they're there for a reason. Um, and uh, what is that reason uh, is worth discussing. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, I, it's Lori Hardin, uh, Michael's wife, who brilliantly says, it's there to teach us how not to do theology. Hmm. Um, is that in a book she's written or where has... it's in a podcast a podcast okay. um, if I can uh, I might find it uh, I don't remember where it is okay but, um, uh, but um, and I think what I use to what I use to support that is um, where Jesus quotes Hosea and says God desires mercy, not sacrifice. There's the sacrificial strand. There's the mercy strand. Jesus firmly places himself within the mercy strand. So this is not anti-Judaic at all. This is firmly within the Jewish tradition. And what I love about the Jewish tradition is that it's comfortable with this struggle. It, right. it knows that it is in this struggle. The, rab, the ancient rabbis are always debating what this stuff means. Because they know that the that uh, the Bible doesn't just say what the Bible says, <laughs> you know. Right. They know that uh, we are all putting our own stuff, our own interpretation into it, um, and uh, to acknowledge that 
and to to interpret the Bible as Jesus interpreted the Bible, um, I think should be the goal of every Christian. Um, the, some disciples come up to Jesus and say, well, what do we do if they don't receive our message when Jesus sends them off to other towns? Yeah. And uh, they say, should we do what Elijah did and cast hellfire and brimstone down on these people? Jesus says, no, no. He says, Kick the dust off of your sandals and move on. Yeah. You don't know what spirit you're of. Right? Yeah. <laughs> when you talk that way. Yeah. But they're going into their tradition and saying, here's our justification mm -hmm. for this. We get it straight out of Elijah, one of our greatest prophets. Yeah. And Jesus says, no. We do that so much today in the church, too. Calling down fire and brimstone on our enemies or... Yeah. Praying for it, at least, or maybe even acting on it. I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah. Jesus also says, you search the scriptures. Mm. And what does he say? You search the scriptures and you you miss the point. Yep. Fundamentally miss the point because you don't realize that the scriptures are pointing towards me. Mm. Well, what do we do with the stuff that's not that doesn't seem to be pointing towards Jesus? The way that he lived his life, the way that he died, um, the way that he resurrected. This is all, Jesus comes back to those who betrayed him and says, peace be with you. I'm not out to get you. It's amazing. <laughs> all the other, James Allison says it beautifully. All of the other ghost stories are about the ghosts coming for revenge. You know, all of the other resurrection stories in the ancient world are about revenge this is about forgiveness. When he it's comes back, peace. it's not for the revenge bloodbath. You killed me, so watch out. Oh. Yeah, when he comes back, when he resurrects, it's nothing but forgiveness. Yeah. It's amazing, yeah. It is, it is the story that is just... It's, we need to be telling a different story in our world today. And that is the story that, Christian, that Christians have been gifted with. And it's the story that Jesus invites us to live into over and over again. And we do it imperfectly, hmm. which I think, it, and when we do it imperfectly, he always comes back and says, peace be with you. Let's try it again. Yeah. Let's do it over again. So patient. Yeah. We really do need to have a lot more conversations about that particular way of reading and teaching scripture and, and um, telling the story that Jesus invites us to tell. Because I think we so often... Uh, I don't know, I think maybe it was Greg Boyd or somebody I heard him, and I don't know where he's at on all of this. I should sure. listen to, you know, I don't know if he's ever read Rene Girard. I've never heard him mention it, but uh, he often talks about having a, a chronological reading of Scripture where we just sort of read through from Genesis to Revelation and yeah. get our theology that way. And he sort of proposes, I think, uh, more of a Christ-focused reading of Scripture where we filter, sort of like what you were saying, um, mercy, not sacrifice. We filter Scripture through how Jesus lived his life a little bit. Not that we're rejecting those other parts, but we're learning something from them. So, I, my, uh, the f a former Archbishop of Canterbury named Michael Ramsey put it perfectly when he said, uh, "God is Christ-like, and in Him there is no unChrist-likeness at mm. all." He's just right. totally riffing yeah. off of First John, obviously. <laughs> that I, you know, God is light and in him there is no right. darkness at all. It's the same. God is Christ-like. Yeah. So what do you do with the, the things that don't look like Christ yeah. in the Bible? Yeah. It's a reflection of us, yeah. not of mm. the God 
revealed through Jesus Christ. It's perfect. There is, I, you know, and I, I might be pushing it too much, but there is a certain idolatry that we can have of the Bible where we place it above Jesus. We call the Bible the Word of God, but the Bible calls Jesus the Word of God. First John, like John chapter 1. Mm-hmm. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh. It doesn't say the Word became a book. Mm-hmm. It says the Word became flesh. I, it's just kind of this elevation of Jesus, putting Jesus in the rightful place as a member yep. of the Trinity and not the Bible. I love the Bible. I don't want people to think no. that I'm anti-Bible. No. It tells the truth about God and the truth about being human. And the truth that I know from my experience about being human is that I project my own desires for revenge, for violence upon God. The Psalms are absolutely right. The yeah. Psalms that say, dash my enemies' babies' heads against <laughs> the wall or whatever... Uh, is true. That's how we what, feel. That's sometimes. how we feel. That's what I want. The truth. There is so much truth right. in all of that, and I don't want to get rid of that truth. We're not to... rejecting that as throw out this part of scripture. Instead, we're seeing it as a reflection of what is actually in our hearts. Yeah, yeah. A lot of times. Yeah, but not in God's heart. No, because not God's in God's heart, heart. God's heart is light and in it there is no darkness that's right yeah i love that (laughs) so people you know people say oh you cherry pick uh and you know one of the things that michael has taught me is cherry pick like jesus cherry pick that's right (laughs) yeah we all cherry pick that's exactly right i do and i have no shame in that because we all do it yeah so well then we only have a i don't know 10 15 minutes to go or so so let's get real practical i mean theology hermeneutics all that is fun but Mm -hmm. How do we apply this to real life? And I specifically want to look at two sort of areas. One is the political. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday, April 27th. Nicely done. Yeah, yesterday's yep. 26th. Yep. We had this super, one of these super Tuesdays in the election. Yeah. And I just hear all the political rhetoric from, it seems like, all sides. But So that's one area I want you to talk about. And then two, I want to make sure we talk about, maybe people don't care about politics, but everybody cares about relationships, marriages and children, parents. So how does mimetic theory and all of that apply to these two areas of life? Pick whichever one you want to start with first. Oh, goodness. Let's do the politics one. Um, well, I, I, I can tell you how it has helped me with politics. Um, it, uh, I, so for Renee, there's the object but the object quickly fades from view and there gets to be something else. Um, so one of the things that we fight about something else, power, prestige, peace, what we talked about earlier, if you can keep the object within view, you might be able to find ways of sharing it. Um, but when you get caught up in rivalry, uh, that's where you get caught up into into problems and politics is inherently set up for rivalry. You have people going against one another and um, it gets ugly. Uh, but what I have learned from mimetic theory is that um, it, it, we all get caught up in that. And so it start, it gets easy to start to blame politicians, no matter which side of the aisle that you're on. Mm. 
for getting caught up in this. But the system is set up, and I don't want to blame the system either. Um, but Can you scapegoat a system? I I don't. I you know I'm. I'm more comfortable scapegoating a system than yeah. I am with, you know, teasing out the system from the person, right, the right, behavior right. from okay. the person. Um, you know, uh, it makes me feel a little more comfortable. Um, there's also, here's what I want to say. Uh, everybody thinks that they're a prophet when they're railing against the system, mm. when they're railing against political leaders, whoever the potential political leader might be or the actual political leader. Here's what I want to say about that. The greatest, the most underrated prophet in the Bible is a man named Nathan. You ask people who's Nathan, the prophet Nathan, nobody's going to know. Nathan is so important because Nathan was the prophet during David's time. David had this affair with Bathsheba. He sent uh, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, off to the front lines where he would surely die to cover up uh, this affair that he had and the baby that was going to come from it. The prophet Nathan sees how horrible this is. And the prophet, who usually rails against the machine, rages against the machine, right? He knows that if he rages against this machine, he might get killed. And certainly there would be no repentance from this political leader. So he comes up with this creative way of showing David how he's a victimizer, how he has scapegoated this person. He goes up to David and he tells him this story about a rich man who has this neighbor. The rich man has 100 sheep uh, and a visitor coming. Well, he doesn't want to get rid of one of his sheep, so he goes to his neighbor who has one sheep, and he kills the neighbor's sheep, and they have this nice barbecue. Uh, and Nathan gets ang- or David gets angry and says, how could this person ever do it? He deserves death. Well, what the prophet Nathan ends up saying is, you are that man. And David clicks, oh my God, what have I done? The prophetic role when it comes to politics, I think, is much better done when we find creative ways in order to show other people how we have been political rulers, how they have participated in scapegoating, victimizing um, the vulnerable, the weak, Hmm. how we all get caught up in that. But when you go in and you rail against political leaders, uh, they react imitatively, mimetically, with rage of their own. Hostility is often mimicked with more hostility. Rarely does it lead to repentance. And I think what Nathan shows us is if we can find creative ways to open our eyes through story, through whatever other means we can creatively come mm-hmm. up with, that we might be able to see our, how we victimize one another through politics. Hmm. I don't know if that's making sense, but it makes a whole lot of sense. The difficulty, <laughs> okay. I think, is doing it. Probably it is. I mean, you have to. It takes Nathan had to be right. so creative, so creative. And there is a lot. I don't want to get. There are times when we have to rage against the machine. Yeah. There are times when we have to be prophetic in that way. But I think we're moving into a time where we're realizing that it just it doesn't. It's not working. We need creative prophets, don't we? To be able to tell stories, works of art, movies, books, whatever it is, where people look at it and they 
condemn it mm-hmm. like David did, mm-hmm. and then someone to come along and say, "Yeah, look, <laughs> it's your own heart." I, yes, and I think that I think what I think what Nathan did was he told a better story, right? And that's what we need hmm. to do. We need to tell a better story. When we are prophetically against someone, we can get caught up in being against, and we can forget that God is for hmm. all of us. You're right. And how do we tell that story where God is for, for us. all of us, including those we call our enemy? Right. There, there are times when we need to be, be against, um, but ultimately being guided by the what are we for is what Christianity should be all about. What we're for, yeah, and what God is for. I like that, telling a better story. So, I mean, we, we are like my tribe, progressive, liberal tribe, all out myself, is just all against Donald Trump. And I get it. Totally get it. But eh, what's it doing to Donald Trump? It's not, it's not changing him. I, so what do we do? Do we just keep doing more of the same? I, did, I think that's foolish. I think we need to tell a better story. Right. And we may not convince Trump of the better story. But we can certainly, as we tell the better story, start convincing other people. Hmm. I don't know. And convincing, I like that. and convincing ourselves. I mean, I don't want to put this all up on others. No. And there are certainly the greatest prophets are the ones who can be critical about their own tribe. So how can I be critical about my progressive liberal tribe? Well, we just form identity like everybody else does. I mean, that's a start. And part of our identity is thinking that we are good. And how are we good? Because we're not like those regressives. We're progressive, right? <laughs> well, we're not like those regressives or those yeah. conservatives or those evangelicals or whoever yeah. it is. And that's just a, James Allison calls that a false sense of goodness. Uh-huh. And I think he's exactly right. Receiving goodness by being over and against someone, nah, it's toxic. Yeah. It's not good. I'll out myself too. I'm more on the conservative side of things. Yeah, nice. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so you and I could good. have lots of conversations about that down the road, but Sweet. I think we probably have lots more in agreement than yeah. disagreement, I, I would think. But yeah. that would be that'd be fun conversations for down the road. Um, I don't know who I'm going to vote for this year. I have no clue. This, I don't like anybody. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I hear you. And, you know, I, I think that there is also uh, we get distracted I think that a lot of politics is distraction from things that matter. Oh, for sure. You know, I mean, you get so caught up in in the political environment that you forget that these are actual human beings that yeah. need to be loved, just yeah. like everybody else. That's a great point. Um, and it, 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 I used the word toxic before, and that is exactly what it is. When you are so over and against someone else, it can start to infect your life and your relationships with others. Mm-hmm. That's part of the medic element of it. Mm. Um, how it just infects everyone hmm. and everything. So Good. Well, how about for people that don't care about politics? You wrote a book called Dodging the Parenting Trap, and it's available through the Raven Foundation, right? Yes. People can subscribe there, download the book for free. I've done that, started Good. reading it. It looks like a great book. I'm not big into parenting books, i got to tell you, because most of the time it yeah. seems like I come away with just guilt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm not getting that from your book so far. Oh, so good. Um, but tell me, you know, for people who maybe aren't in politics, they're saying, how does mimetic theory apply to my life? Well, parenting, for example, or marriage. Yeah. Uh, give us some su- tips, suggestions for how, how mimetic theory helps um, in those relationship areas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, uh, adults are really good about hiding our conflicts. 
the mimetic element of our conflicts. Mm. Uh, kids uh, are not so much good at that. <laughs> Haven't learned it yet. Yeah. <laughs> they don't know how to hide it. They're so innocent yeah. in it. Yeah. Um, so uh, just a couple of days ago, uh, they were fighting over one of our tablets, I think, or something. And um, uh, so mimetic theory helps me understand that it's that they're really fighting over something behind the tablet behind the object and it it's an intellectual exercise to say hey you're really not fighting about the tablet and that's not it, saying that just isn't helpful for nine six five year olds sure seems to them like they are right yeah yeah and so there's a there's a certain um element of it in which uh i don't i i can be more patient because i see what's happening behind it you know what i mean like um mimetic theory helps me understand that it's it's the relationship behind it um that is the most important thing and it's how i model a more peaceful way of having of going through these rivalries that my kids are having with one another um and so oftentimes um when i'm uh when i'm tired when uh when i'm frustrated with how things are going at work or something like that i can start uh punishing my kids for these things and what does that do it models for them that uh punishment and rivalry for stuff is an okay thing. Hmm. So what I'm doing is I'm feeding into the process, the, the, the negative reciprocity, you might say, that's happening within. Um, instead, how do we talk uh, through these conflicts um, is a much better approach. How do you... How do you Share, how do you find ways of sharing the object? How do you keep the object there so that it, the thing behind the thing doesn't um, destroy the object hmm. or the relationship? I think in parent, the hardest thing about parenting that I've noticed, and hopefully this comes in through the book, is how easily I get caught up in the rivalry with my kids, my wife. And I hope that that's part of where you may not be feeling guilty because we all get caught up in this stuff. And it's, it's what mimetic theory helps us understand in the Bible too, is that the people that we get most caught up in rivalry with are the people that we're closest to. Yeah. I've seen that. It's our family. It's, you know, sibling rivalry is strife throughout the Bible. It's always there. I mean, Genesis is, goes Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Joseph and his brothers. It's all about sibling rivalry. Um, and so it, you expect it. You know it's going to happen. You don't make too much of it because you expect it. Um, and you you work for way. You look for ways to navigate it um, in more peaceful ways that model, hopefully, reconciliation. Hmm. So. Yeah, and I think what I love about your book is it's not just principles or theory it's a lot of stories and examples on how this is working in your own family 
Yeah. And that's what's really helpful to me about it. It's not, I'm not walking away from the books and, oh, here's the four things I need to change. Here's right. the seven <laughs> steps to make my kids better kids. You know, this is, yeah. this is, look, here's sort of mimetic theory. Here's how it looks in my life, in, our, in my family, in my kids. And, and I, I don't know, I just find that approach really helpful. So Good. Good, yeah. Awesome. Well, we're pretty much out of time, but I have one last question. And this is one question I try to ask everybody I interview. It's sort of the one thing question, one guiding principle, one main thing. Like if you could preach in a church or you could sit down with somebody and you just have five minutes, you know, preaching a sermon, you have longer than that typically. But just sort of the one thing that helps you get through life, the one thing you wish everybody could know, the one thing that guides you in your your life and your studies and your writing and just everything. What would be that one thing? I would say relax. Relax. God loves you. You can just relax. Don't fall asleep. <laughs> fall asleep when appropriate. But you you don't receive your identity from the abundant love of God that's there for you and relax. I love it. Awesome. So much pressure put on people and churches to be this or do that or accomplish oh. things and we get so caught up in the activity. Yeah. We just miss out on the love you, I, that comes to us through relaxing. I think, and oh man, I get this through James Allison too. I think goodness is one of our big problems because we're always striving to be good. Hmm. And you just, just relax. It's okay. It is okay. That's one of the things about parenting <laughs> that I hope comes through in the book is you're going to make mistakes. Yep. I've made mistakes. Here they are. Relax. Your kids are going to be just fine. They love you. That's one of the other great things about kids. Jesus is always like putting kids in front of people. I've noticed that throughout all of my mistakes, my kids, five minutes later, have already forgiven me and forgotten about what happened. That's the kingdom of God. And I'm just trying to live and be more like my kids. I love it. Wonderful. Well, Adam, thank you very much for sharing some time with us, some insight, it's helping us understand the medic theory. If people want to learn more about you, where can they do that? How can they do that? Uh, well, the home site is uh, ravenfoundation.org. And uh, my colleagues, Suzanne Ross, Lindsay Paris Lopez, and uh, Maura Junius, uh, help out with a lot of writing on there do great stuff and uh, another website is called uh, teaching nonviolent atonement which is more theological um, that one's on Pathios. that one's on Pathios. Mm -hmm. so um, so yeah those are the two places where uh, you can find out more about me okay and then obviously people can get your book for free for free by going to ravenfoundation.org signing up to receive the free email newsletter right Yes, and I would encourage you, once you download the book, uh, please sh send it to whomever you want. Email it to whomever. Email it okay. to whomever you want uh, so that they don't have to um, go through the hoop of subscribing. <laughs> now, what if someone really loves social networking, Twitter, oh, Facebook? Can they find you there? You can find me on uh, Facebook, Adam Erickson, I guess. Uh, I also have a Facebook page, Adam Erickson Public Theologian. Okay. Um, so you can find me there, and I'm on Twitter, Adam Erickson. Sounds so, good. Yeah. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Jeremy. It was a pleasure. Again with you. I can't wait. Yeah. All right.
I hope that that discussion between Adam Erickson and myself on mimetic theory was you found helpful and insightful, not only to understand life and scripture and God, but also politics and parenting and marriage and, and neighbor relationships and all of the other things that mimetic theory speaks to. If you want to learn more about that, I do want to highly recommend that you not only go to the Raven Foundation and get his book, Dodging the Parenting Trap, but also I recently wrote a book called The Atonement of God, in which most of the insights and ideas of that book are also based on the mimetic theory. I propose 10 areas of life and theology that uh, this understanding of, of mimetic theory helps us come to great understanding of. That was an awkward statement, but you understand the point. You understand what I'm trying to say. I wrote, I wrote the book. It's, it's dedicated to Rene Girard and how his insights in mimetic theory changed my life in theology. So, so go to Amazon, get The Atonement of God. There's also links to that in the show notes. Also, if you want to see more how mimetic theory helps us understand scripture, in my one verse podcast, where I'm, I'm teaching through scripture one verse at a time, in future episodes, right now as I record this, I'm beginning to study Genesis chapter 3. And I believe that Genesis chapter 3 and 4 contain some of the clearest explanations of mimetic rivalry that we have in all of Scripture. It really is. The Bible begins with showing us the problem in human relationships, the problem of, of, of mimetic rivalry. And then, of course, Jesus comes along to reveal it even more clearly. But the problem, uh, these two chapters, Genesis 3 and 4, reveal this problem so clearly. So if you want to see a little bit more on some truths you never recognized from Genesis 3 and 4 uh, previously, or you want to see how mimetic uh, theory is applied to Scripture, make sure you join me at the One Verse Podcast. You can just go to iTunes and search for the One Verse Podcast or Jeremy Myers there. Or you can even go to my blog at redeeminggod.com and uh, there's links there to subscribe as well. And of course, you can also, I've got links in the show notes for this episode of Theology.fm. Just go to theology.fm slash interview slash 20 and you will see all the links that Adam mentioned in our discussion as well as links to the Raven Foundation, links to the One Verse podcast, links to my book, The Atonement of God, and also, if there's a link uh, there to, so you can leave a rating and review on iTunes if that is something you would feel inclined to do. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Theology.fm. And I hope that what you learned today is going to allow your life in theology to look more and more like Jesus Christ.